And this evening, the Lord speaks to us through 2 Timothy chapter 3, the verses 10 through 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, the verses 10 through 17. <clears throat> toward the end of the New Testament. 2 Timothy 3, beginning at verse 10. You know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word of the Lord. And then if you would turn with me in the back of your Grace Altar hymnals to Article 4, for a moment. We dealt with Articles 2, B, 3, and 4 last Sunday, and tonight we're moving on to Article 5 of the Belgic Confession, page 819 in the back of your Psalter hymnal, because just let me begin by saying a few words, uh, just a couple of notes concerning Article 4. You read the title of the article, which says, The Canonical books. Now that word canon means rule or standard by which something is measured or judged. So the church has accepted 66 books of the Bible as authoritative for its faith and life. And I challenged you last Sunday to look through the list and find out if you could find which book is missing. You probably noticed, sorry, Lamentations. Yeah, you noted Lamentations was missing probably because it was considered to be part of Jeremiah's writings, the Lamentations of Jeremiah. In Article 4, after the listing of the Chronicles, you'll notice this wonderful word that I should get all of you to say. The two books of Chronicles called Paralipomenon, something like that. You're supposed to say it very fast. I'm never very good at these big words. My wife will tell you that too. That's an obsolete name for the Old Testament books of First and Second Chronicles, which was regarded as supplementary to kings. So that long word sometimes means just supplementary to, uh, to kings. Article 4 also states that Paul was the author of Hebrews. But the real person inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Hebrews is not known by name. And some of the other authorships, as noted by Guido Debray, have been questioned as well. And while there might be all kinds of scholarly questions about Article 4, they don't take away from the thrust of the article, 
which basically describes to us the contents of the Word of God as we find it in the Bible. Of course, the purpose of the list was to differentiate the books of the Bible from the contents of the Apocrypha, which were other writings accepted by the Roman Catholic Church of the day as being inspired uh, by the Lord. And the reformers wanted to make sure that the people understood that the 66 books, as are now found in the Bible, are sufficient for us to meet Jesus and to understand something of the plan of salvation. More than 66 books, the church has always said, are not needed. The books of the Apocrypha, however, are helpful uh, to help us understand the context of the rest of the books of the Bible, and they're useful for teaching and even for inspiration. And if you ever read the Apocrypha, you'll know that some of the very fascinating books are, are in there uh, that will tell you about the intertestamentary period, what happened in that 400-year period, the books of the Maccabees, and there's other interesting books that are there. If you've never read it, take the opportunity sometime to read the Apocrypha. But we have not accepted those as the inspired word of God. So that brings us to Article 5. Just a few tidbits about Article 4, Article 5. We receive, this is what we confess, we receive all these books, that is in Article 4, and these only as holy and canonical for the re regulating, founding, and establishing of our faith. And we believe without a doubt all things contained in them, not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, but above all because the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that they are from God, and also because they prove themselves to be from God, and even the blind themselves are able to see that all the things predicted in them do happen. That's Article 5. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me begin with a parable of sorts, a parable that is repeated in different contexts under different circumstances. And maybe you've heard it, or maybe you've heard a version of it before, so it's not really terribly unknown as such. It's probably not a true story at all, but it does make a point that's applicable to Article 5 of the Belgic Confession. It's kind of a cool story. The New Englanders, apparently, tell this story. It's a story about an old man who lived outside a certain town. He was an expert electrician. In fact, as the story goes, when he was young, he designed the electrical system for the town. He figured out how lines and circuits could best be arranged to bring cheap and plentiful electrical energy to the town's citizens. For some reason, townspeople didn't treat this man very well, and when he got to a certain age, they fired him or forcibly retired him and replaced him with a younger electrician. In effect, the, told, the town told the old man to get lost, so he moved to a nearby wood. Nobody saw him or heard from him. You know what's going to happen. One day, the town's power failed. Lights flickered, went out, refrigerators warmed up, heaters cooled down, TV sets, radios went dark and silent, no food could be cooked, no clothes could be washed. The town was in a real state of trouble. And none of the young electricians seemed to know how to solve the problem. Then one of the town commissioners remembered the old man in the woods 
possibly he could find a way to restore power. He was an authority on the town's electrical system. After all, he thought it up in the first place. So the old man was brought into the central power plant. He walked around slowly for a few minutes, shining his flashlight here and there. He pulled out a hammer finally from his pocket, walked over to one main circuit, tapped on it, and instantly all the lights went on. The power surged through the whole system. And then the old man went back to his home in the woods. Three weeks later, the mayor received a bill. For services rendered on the evening, the power went out in the town. And the, on the bill, the old man charged the town $1,000.05 for his work. And this is how he listed um, the charges. Five cents for tapping and $1,000 for knowing where to tap. You heard that story before. The old man was an authority on the town's power system. Why? Because he was its author. The system came from him, and so he knew exactly what to do with it. He was the authority. It's a parable. As a church, we confess, along with the writers of the Belgian Confession, that the Bible is the authority for our faith and for our lives. As Article 5 puts it, we receive all this book, and then the references to that list is given in Article 4 or the books of the Bible, for the regulating, founding, and establishing of our faith. And it's interesting that in this Article 5, as well as Article 6, as you're going to read later, the word authority is used. The Bible has authority. Why? We read that from the scriptures, 2 Timothy 3, 16. It's God-breathed. That is to say, God is the author. And so what the Bible says, God says. When you're reading the scripture, you're reading the very words of God himself. The very God who we talked about in Article 1 of the Belgian Confession, who is all those things and much more. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that fact, I think. Sometimes when the, when the, Bible, so when the Bible is read at the dinner table or in church or at youth or cadets or gyms or wherever it's read, we're hearing the very words of God. And maybe sometimes more reverence is needed and we need to listen more closely as the Lord speaks to us. Now, granted, there were fishermen and farmers and princes and well-educated and not such well-educated people who were used by the Lord to put words on paper. But ultimately, it is the Lord, through the working of the Spirit, who wrote this Bible. And that's precisely why the book is an expert on faith and life, because God is. Okay, so what kind of authority does the Bible have? It's a question that many of us have a hard time answering. We know what kind of authority the government has and the kind of authority the police have, namely to uphold the law and make sure we live in peace and freedom on a national level. We have an understanding for the kind of and extent of authority that a principal or a teacher has in a school. We have some understanding for the extent and authority parents have in a home, but the Bible? 
Does it have authority over our lives? We know that it's an important book, but does it have power? Does it indeed have a say over your life or over my life? And if it does, what kind of authority does it have? Now, as Christians, we would answer that, of course, the Lord has say in our lives. He's the Lord, after all. He's the one who bought us with his blood. And if, he, if the Lord is indeed the Lord, then the Belgic Confession would argue that the Bible, being the word of the Lord, sure does have a lot of power and has a whole lot to say about your life and about my life. We heard something about that already from Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a life a light for my path. That indicates that it gives us direction in life and so forth. And without it, we're going to get lost. But let me flesh it out a little more fully so that we get a clear understanding of the place and the power or the authority of the Bible for life. For the first thing that we mean, and Guido de Bray would say this in Article 5, the first thing that we mean when we say the Bible has authority is that it regulates our life. That is to say, it lays out the boundaries of life. What's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, what's true, what's false. It's the measuring stick. It's a rule of life in the midst of a world of confusion and disobedience. And deviation from the measuring stick and from the measure, from the will of God, tends to lead to serious consequences. We're hearing about that in the story of Jeremiah in the morning as we study the prophecies of Jeremiah. The people of Israel disobeyed. What happened? They paid the consequences. Disobedience led to exile. Disobedience to the word of God leads to all kinds of wrong consequences. In this respect, the Bible finds lots of opposition today. People aren't that willing to accept the Word of God as normative for life. They want to be able to do their own thing and go their own way, even among those sitting in the pew week after week. Many of us are all about me, myself, and I, about me being in control, about me making decisions about my life. But such an egocentric life perspective, egocentric life and perspective on life has consequences everywhere. Much is allowed, it seems, these days under the guise of freedom for, of expression. And so, for example, the human body is used to sell everything from cars to jeans to perfumes, and pornography is readily available, and people make their own decisions as to what they want to do with their bodies. The abuse of people continues, often all for the making of money, and I, you could spend the whole evening trotting out all sorts of examples in labor, in earth-keeping, in industry, in our treatment of aboriginals or other races or whatever, where we fall short of God's will and God's approach as laid out in Scripture, all because we want to do our own thing and have our own say and earn our own money. God sets the boundaries. They're all in here, but people continue to rebel. And then sometimes I'm amazed that we sit in wonder why things are so messed up and why we find ourselves in the situations that we do. 
but finding oneself in a messed up situation when God's will has been neglected really ought not to fill any of us with surprise. It's like at home. Parents are the ones who set the rules and the boundaries in which children live. And if the children live within those bounds, everything goes well and smoothly. But then there's those moments, and we know them all too well, when the boundaries are overstepped. And at that point, the child has to face the consequences. And when they face the consequences, the child really doesn't need to ask him or herself why they're in such a predicament. It's really no secret. You transgressed. You stepped outside the boundaries. It's like a fish jumping out of the bowl suddenly wondering why in the world it can't breathe. Of course it can't breathe. It's outside of the water, outside of the boundaries. So the Bible, in the Bible, the Lord gives us his will for living as obedient covenant partners. And of course, the only way that we can know his will is to open the Bible, to get to know it, and to let it regulate our lives. And the reality is, if we do not live in obedience, the Lord has made it quite clear that we will suffer the consequences. So first of all, then, the Bible is there for the regulation of our faith. Secondly, the Bible is the foundation of our faith, says Article 5. The scriptures or the writings, writes Paul to Timothy, are useful for teaching our spirit, our understanding of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose birth we celebrate and whose coming we anticipate, is awakened by the Holy Spirit's use of the word. James writes, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Our faith, our Christian walk, our Christian life begins, is rooted in, is based upon the hearing of the word. You hear about this in Romans 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Of course, that's why they're evangelists and why we have worship services and why we're encouraged to participate in devotions. That's also why there's people who have dedicated their lives to translating the Bible in different languages and why there are others in the, in the business of distributing the Bible to the far corners of the earth. The Bible is basic and fundamental to the Christian faith and life. Through this word, we come face to face with Jesus Christ, the child of Bethlehem, Emmanuel. Through general revelation, we've noted we come to know the Creator. But through his special revelation, the Lord reveals himself to us as Redeemer. And when we open the Bible, and when we read the history of salvation, we come to understand something of God's great love for, his, for, for this world and for his people. A love demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ, his Son. John wrote in his Gospel, chapter 20, verse 31, he wrote his gospel saying that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So opening the Bible is crucial to the founding of our faith, to believing. The Holy Spirit will use it and open our eyes to believe. 
And finally, says Article 5 of the Confession, the Bible establishes or confirms our faith in God. As we read the Bible and study it, as we feed on the truth, we are not only founded by our faith, but we become stronger and stronger in our faith and more and more disciplined in our response to the Lord. What comes out of the heart and the mouth is usually based on what we have put into our hearts and, and minds. The old adage fits. If we fill ourselves with junk, we'll also spit out junk. But if we fill ourselves with the things of the Lord, we'll also reflect that in our talk, in our judgments, in our action, in our life. The Word of God does not and cannot leave us unresponsive. The Bible is not a book that you read with no reaction and no result. The Lord, through the Word, constantly demands a response of some sort, and that's because this Word is alive. One cannot just pick up the Bible, read it, put it aside, and act as if nothing has been read or as nothing has ever happened. People will have a reaction. They'll have a response to the Bible. That's so because Hebrews 12, verse 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Or as the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, the word is useful for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It's the amazing thing about the Bible. It never sugarcoats our condition outside of Christ. It tells the truth about the fact that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and that we need a Savior. In its penetrating light, we learn to know ourselves as we never did before. The deepest secrets of our hearts and souls are laid bare and judged. And on the basis of such a description of our condition, the Bible prompts us to flee for forgiveness and refuge and protection to the only name given among people under heaven by which we can be saved. It shows us the glorious work of redemption and reconciliation in Christ Jesus. It assures us that whoever comes to the Lord in Christ Jesus will not be cast out. This word comforts us, upholds us, strengthens us in all circumstances of life. It helps us to grow in maturity in the Lord and so on. In that sense, the Bible is the most wonderful book there is and speaks with God's authority because God is the author. He breathed out this book using people to write it. And while he used ordinary people, it's not Paul or James or Moses who have the authority to command us, but God does and uses that authority in the Bible. And so we receive the Bible as, an, as authoritative for the regulating, founding, and establishing of our faith. Without it, therefore, we would be lost. With it, we have a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And it's absolutely trustworthy. Now, having heard that, the question that follows from all of this is, on what basis do we accept the Bible as authoritative, as true for the regulating, founding, and establishing of our faith? So how do you know that the Bible is true? 
And at this point, the Belgian Confession challenged the teachings of its day. We accept, we believe without doubt the things contained in the Bible. And then notice what it says. Not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, who takes, wants to take some of the authority and some of the power away from the church, but above all because the Holy Spirit testify in our hearts that they are from God. So first of all, by faith, through the working of the Holy Spirit, I accept the Bible as God's word to me and to all of creation. Faith in the Bible as the word of God is not so much an agreement with a logical argument or agreement with a church proclamation or with some church council, but faith in the scriptures as the word of God is the result of an encounter with God. Why does one believe the scriptures? Not because I can logically prove that the Bible is God's special revelation, but because I can hear him speaking to me in a very personal and convincing way through the scriptures. This is how God speaks to his people, and his people respond. Secondly, we know this is the word of God because in the final analysis, the Bible itself through such texts as 2 Timothy 3.16 or 2 Peter 1.19 and 20 proves itself to be the word of God. It says it itself. Now, such statements concerning the truth of Scripture and, and my simply accepting that because of faith may not be very satisfying to a world crying for proof. Proof. But the answer is that we simply accept it all, and the, the answer that we simply accept it all by faith is not very tangible, but there's more in Article 5. Thirdly, the, the confession goes on to add that the Bible proves itself to be from God because anyone can see that the things predicted in it do happen. Christianity is historical faith. Over and over again, the word demonstrates that it's telling the truth. Think of some of the prophecies of old. Centuries before they came to pass, prophets or the word of God told of the rise and fall of certain kingdoms. We need only to think of the book of Daniel, the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue that was destroyed by that rock that came rolling from the mountainside. Jeremiah spoke of 70 years of exile, which came to pass. There was the prophecy of the 400 years in Egypt, and so many more. And many of the prophets spoke of the coming of Jesus Christ. Many of the prophecies of old contained remarkable and specific details. And secular history and archaeology have confirmed much of the scriptures. Other prophecies, such as the establishment and the preservation of the church, the worldwide spread of the gospel, the increasing tensions and wickedness of the world are being fulfilled right before our eyes. Says Guido de Bray, even the blind themselves are able to see that the things predicted in these books of the Bible do happen. Many people don't accept the word of God don't accept this book as the Word of God, but it is. That's the confession of the church. The inescapable conclusion to the matter is that a book such as the Bible, which is in a class all of its own, is there in a class all of its own precisely because God is the author.
And the Bible asks itself asks, and who can be compared to God? And the more you study the scriptures, the more amazing of a book it becomes. It's a unique book. It shows us what we're really like, dead in our sins and transgressions. It's a book that urges us to look back over the countless ages of human history to behold the wondrous works of our God. It points us to Jesus, to the cross, and to the solution for all of our misery. And then it points us beyond the cross and the grave and tells us about the inevitable, sure end of history. He's coming again. The conclusion is inescapable. People could never have dreamed this up. Only God could have produced such a book. It is God-breathed. Indeed, the very words of God's himself, God himself. Everything else, says Peter, fades away and dies. But the word of the Lord will stand forever. And that's so because God will stand forever. The Bible. Don't live life without it. The old man in the opening illustration knew where to tap because he was the author of the system. He was the expert. So God knows where to tap in our lives because he is the expert. He's the supreme authority in the universe. After all, he's the author. He created it. It's also he who now speaks to the Bible, to the likes of you and me, to his people throughout this word, world. So spread the word, open the word, study the word, read of God's great redeeming love, read and believe. And by believing, you will have life in his name. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for the Bible that is so readily available to us in a language that we can understand and that we can read. And we thank you, Lord, that this word has authority in our lives because it's your word. And so make us good students of that word and help us to ingest it, to live it, and to also regulate our lives according to it. Affirm to us, Lord, time and time again that indeed this is your word. And through the working of your Holy Spirit, convict others that they too may see and through it come to know the plan of salvation in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to see Christ every time we open the Bible and help us to look to him for our hope and for our life. We pray all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.